It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Around 750 million people live on the European continent. So what about it? What will its future look like? Will there ever be a United States of Europe? For this and more, you will hear from European thought leaders, artists, civil society representatives, and all those who care about its future. You will receive key insights into the ways Europe is changing and how your voice can be part of this. I am Paolo De Stilo, and you're listening to Europe Matters. In this episode, it is my great honor to introduce you to the Dutch poet and writer Ilya Leonard Pfeiffer. Distinguished in nearly every genre imaginable, he is one of the most celebrated authors of the Dutch language. He has more than 40 titles to his name, including poetry, novels, short stories, plays, essays, scientific studies, columns, translations and anthologies. He's the only Dutch author who has won major debut prizes for both poetry and prose. He experienced an international breakthrough with La Superba in 2013. The book was a bestseller and has been published in several countries like the United States of America, Germany and Italy. However, at the end of 2018, Grand Hotel Europa appeared a grand novel about love in times of mass tourism, nostalgia and European identity. The book was applauded in Dutch and Belgian press and immediately became a bestseller. So we are currently in Genoa. Thank you very much for accepting this invitation. Thank you for coming and thank you very much for your very kind introduction. Yeah, so uh, first of all, you're from the Netherlands, which is very flat, and we find ourselves kind of on a hill here in, the, in Italy, how come you've decided to come here, to Genoa? Yes, uh, in Liguria it's very difficult to find one square meter that is flat. Yeah. So I guess uh, I wanted it to be as different as it could be. No, but in, uh, in fact uh, it wasn't even a very uh, decision I thought very much about. It was all um, a coincidence actually. It was in... Uh, summer 2008 that I ended up here in Genoa during a vacation and uh, by lack of a better word I fell in love with this city and uh, quite spontaneously I decided that it would perhaps be a good idea for me to stay here for a little while 
I thought that little while now has become like 13 years almost yeah, yeah. 13 years this little while yeah. wow <laughs> yeah. and we are actually kind of looking at one of a very special place uh, the Cattedrale di San Lorenzo yeah and we have a nice view on the cathedral yes and one of the things that you highlight a lot in your in your works is history especially if we look at Italy it's covered in history that there's like kind of a struggle for Europeans with their past. Yeah, that's, that's very true. No, actually, uh, this has everything to do also with the fact that I moved from Holland to Italy 13 years ago. This uh, translocation had a couple of consequences. Now, uh, after a while, I started to feel a little bit less Dutch, which I think is only very sound for a person. Uh, I started to feel a little bit more Italian, which is also uh, a very happy consequence. But uh, most importantly, I realized that I was starting to feel more European. And what, what does that mean, to feel European? That is exactly the question I was asking myself. Yeah. What does it mean to feel European? What is a European identity? And actually, it's this personal question of mine that is at the root of the novel Grand Hotel Europe. And when you start thinking about that question, perhaps you don't even have to think that much to realize that one of the main characteristics of the old continent is the omnipresence of the past. The past is everywhere. And I mean also the past really in a physical, tangible sense. No? Uh, we are surrounded by remnants of our glorious history. There are monuments everywhere. We're looking on the cathedral of Genoa from the 11th century. And um, for us, these are our riches. No, this is something we are very proud of. We feel good about it, to be surrounded by all this past. You found it here in Italy. Did you miss that in, in the Netherlands, for example? Well, of course, it's also in the Netherlands. I, um, I used to live in the historical center of the city of Leiden, which is... Uh, a very, uh, very cute little town from uh, the 16th, 17th century. So the history is also there, but here in Italy, it's really overwhelming. I think that uh, half of the world heritage is on Italian soil. Yeah, that's what Italians love to say. That yes, there's like yeah. more than half, but that's also true. For example, everywhere that they try to create a metro or stuff like that, they always find or Romans, yeah, yeah, or Etrurian it's, stuff. It's better not to, not to construct metros, because <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're destined to find, uh, to find everything. And that's the problem. Now, uh, this omnipresence of the past, which, uh, which is our pride, perhaps also has another side to it. Now, it can also be a hindrance. In my book, somebody says somewhere that in Europe there is so much past that there is no space left anymore for a future but isn't that too cynical as a way of thinking about europe well it is a diagnosis if it is um, if it is an illness there may also be a cure but uh, no it has two sides to it because of course uh, we love this past but it is also it has the danger in it of nostalgia, of being stuck in the past. No. And, of course, the point is to balance these two aspects, which are two sides of the same coin. 
Yeah, so for, for the listeners who still haven't had the chance to read your book... Uh, I don't think there are many. <laughs> so um, can we give a little sketch of what's going on? No? You, you arrive, you, you yourself are the writer in the book, or you, you kind of perceive yourself or you describe... Yeah, well, the protagonist of the book is uh, somebody with a very improbable name, Ilya Leonard Pfeiffer. And quite he's improbable. A bit, uh, he looks a bit like me, but okay. it isn't really me. No, mm. it's not an autobiographical book. Yeah. It, is, it is a book of fiction. Yes, and this uh, Ilya Leonard Pfeiffer of the book, he arrives at this place, this hotel, which is the Grand Hotel Europe that gives the book its title, which is... Uh, an old grand hotel, which is exactly as you would want it to be. It's a bit uh, falling to pieces, and um, but it has still the smell of the glorious days of the past. And, uh, and uh, he is going there in order to, uh, to write and to think about what went wrong with the love of his life. So half of the book is... Um, him being in a hotel and the other half is him looking back on this incredible love story with uh, Cleo. They met in Genoa here, but then soon they move to Venice because uh, Cleo gets a job there. And most part of this love story is set in Venice. And of course, this is not a coincidence because Venice is perhaps the most extreme example of a city where there is so much past that there is literally no place left for a future. In Venice, you cannot construct any skyscraper or any metro or new building. No. And the the image that might some people might receive is that actually whole of Europe is kind of becoming a living Disneyland for tourists, where people go and just see the past. Yes, and uh, because a large part of the story is set in Venice, um, tourism is a very important theme in the book. And this is also, um, I, I think, a, uh, an effect of this omnipresence of this past. No? Because, of course, uh, when you live your life surrounded by glorious monuments from the past, uh, it's tempting sooner or later to conclude that perhaps... Um, the best times are behind us. Uh, and also this nostalgia is in the core of European identity. But there are also perhaps objective reasons to come to the same conclusion that Europe has seen better times in the past. For instance, geopolitically, no? uh, the times when the nations of Europe ruled the seven seas of the world and colonized the continents is definitely behind us. And it's all for the best like that, don't get me wrong. But it means that Europe arrived at a point in history where it has to redefine itself. It has to redefine its position between rising and declining superpowers. It's also true economically, I think. And this is perhaps more visible here in the south than in the north of Europe. But a country like Italy has increasing difficulties of maintaining a good old-fashioned proper economy in the sense of an economy based on heavy industry, shipbuilding and that kind of thing. This doesn't make sense anymore. It's, it's more and more difficult to, uh, to face the competition of uh, rising economies in the East. So also economically, 
Europe has to reinvent itself. And one of the things you see, and again, it's something you see more in the south than in the north, is that as an alternative model of making money, an alternative economical model, they turn to this main characteristic of the European continent, which is the omnipresence of the past. And this past is something you can sell. But haven't we seen through this pandemic of one year and a half still ongoing it's a piece of economy that is very uh, susceptible to changes like a pandemic yes exactly well uh, i am very critical about this new economical model based on mass tourism i don't think it's a very viable alternative and the pandemic uh, is one reason to to come to this conclusion that it is perhaps not a very good idea to base an entire economy on a touristic monoculture we have seen how vulnerable that is we have seen the images of venice empty during oh, that the was pandemic. beautiful it was beautiful <laughs> but it was also extremely tragic yeah because you, you also realized that venice without tourism doesn't stand a chance to survive. There's, there's nothing left there. There are not even any, any inhabitants left, hardly. So I think what the pandemic showed us is the, the real problem of Venice during the pandemic was not the absence of tourists. The real problem was the absence of an alternative to tourism. And also no citizens, Yeah, well, that's yeah. They that's they all concept. fled away. Yeah. yeah, and it's important to realize that it's important to realize that tourism is not at all an innocuous phenomenon. Tourism can be very damaging. It can be damaging to the to the social infrastructures of a city of a country, and Venice is a very extreme example. But the very same tendencies you see everywhere. You see also in the historical center of Amsterdam, in Prague, in Barcelona, in other Italian cities. There's always the same mechanisms that when a city starts to enjoy the interests of tourists, uh, you end up with rising house prices, uh, more facilities for tourists, less facilities for inhabitants, and in the end, inhabitants leave. So now there's there's various uh, themes as well that you tackle in the in your book uh, beyond the the huge critical factor of tourism and the 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 way that Europe is trying to uh, find a new way of sustaining itself and also finding its place in in its in the new universe that is creating itself right now. But there's other phenomena like immigration that is always being very very negatively seen whereas for others if we're looking at people more on the left they're seen as the solution to the problem and you specific pieces you give some room to it you give space to this abdul who actually escaped and actually went to europe but in very gruesome ways europe no europe has been very colonial in the ways that it has executed its powers and Could we even say that it's still colonial in the ways that it's dealing with its past, but also with the current situation of immigrations, uh, refugees, and everything else? There's still this kind of feeling of the outsider is not welcome. 
Well, in effect, we're talking about effects of globalization here, no? Both tourism and immigration are um, different effects of globalization. And there is, of course, a very grim contrast between the two. And I became very acutely aware of that uh, in real life when I was uh, in Malta. Because we all know that Malta is the other Lampedusa, no? Uh, it's also uh, the destination of many refugees from Africa. But the surprising thing was that uh, while I was there in Malta, in Valletta, uh, I was there for a week, I didn't see one black person. And that is very strange. And then I researched a bit and um, I discovered that it's also very much part of deliberate Maltese policy. The refugees that arrived there are, uh, are kept hidden because they don't want to damage the tourism. And, uh, of course, that's, that's very uh, paradoxical, no? That in order not to scare the wealthy white travelers that are looking for a past, they have to expel the poor black travelers who are looking for a future. You say that this is a colonial attitude, yes, perhaps it is. Uh, I think it's most of all it's short-sightedness. Because when we talk about immigration, uh, I think one of the lessons that history teaches us is that immigration can never be stopped. And in the case of the uh, African refugees trying to come to Europe, if you see uh, the risks they are willing to take, if you see that they are easily willing to risk their lives to get here, you understand something of the desperation and they are not stopped by, by anything. So I don't think it's very fruitful to, to think about ways of, of stopping them. I think it's about time to think in a different way. If they are coming, perhaps it's better to think about ways in which we can use them, in which they can be useful members of our society. No? Become citizens. Become citizens, yeah. Instead of being immigrants. Yes. And of course, this takes uh, a bit of an investment. No? Uh, perhaps you have to give them schooling and that kind of thing. But I think this is, on the long run, it's a much more uh, intelligent idea than trying to stop them. This also goes with the thought that we have of borders. No, Europe is an interesting project, the European Union at least. It's a very interesting project of trying to get collaboration between now 27 member states to collaborate and actually further integration between each other to do commercial activities at least. Now we're also seeing that we want more of a political European Union. But it's still based on borders and that, that we saw during the pandemic, everybody closed their borders last yes. year. Yeah. And that and that actually shows that the way people still think is very much about their own piece of land, their own small territory. So everybody thought that the pandemic was only to Italy at the beginning. No, the, the coronavirus was only stable and would only stay in Italy. But it didn't. It came 
all the way up to the north. Yeah, this is of course also because healthcare is uh, is not seen as a European um, matter. No, it's uh, it's very much. It, there uh, is one part that is a European matter, but it's still it it wasn't being considered uh, at the time, but it, it still is in the in the treaties. But they never never promoted or never have actually acted on it. There's too much money going around in healthcare, so. National governments want to keep control, I think. But anyway, now when you talk about borders, I, I think it's important to realize that it is perhaps the most daring, most beautiful project ever undertaken by mankind, unifying Europe. It is, of course, painstakingly slow and difficult and frustrating, but we're making progress slowly. And when you imagine... Um, directly after the Second World War, the idea of unifying Europe, abolishing internal borders, this, this would have been a dream. And actually, we are realizing that dream. It's not perfect yet. We still have a lot of work to do, but we are getting there. And um, yeah, with the pandemic, um, we had this, uh, this fallback on national borders, which is a pity. Um, and when you're talking about Identity, no. Uh, I think it's also very important to realize that one identity doesn't exclude another. It's important to realize that you can be both Dutch and European. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In my case, perhaps, I think my first identity now is Genoese. My second identity is Dutch. And my third identity is European. 
Perhaps two or three are turned around. I don't where, know. Where's the Italian identity? Oh, that's four, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. No, I feel more European than Italian. I'm not sure if I feel more Dutch than European. But anyway, there's, you can have many identities. No? Yeah. And I think actually that Italy, the country Italy, can be an example for Europe because the unification of Italy in the mid uh, 19th century made a political unity. But for the rest, we can also say that it failed because all the cultural differences between the regions are still very much there, are very relevant. And this is actually also the wealth of Italy, all these differences, these cultural, regional differences. And this works perfectly. And I think this can be a model for Europe in, in a way that it demonstrates that a political unity doesn't mean that you have to abolish all the cultural differences. Actually, you have to uh, to keep them. One of the things that I've heard you talk about is the United States of Europe. And already in, the, in those three words, you're actually talking about states. Are you talking about nation states or are you talking about states? Well, it's a provocation. Yeah. Uh, the United States of Europe uh, would be the end point. It would be like the United States of America, no, that the unification is complete and that uh, uh, Europe is a single state called the United States of Europe. But isn't that too much an American dream? Then, Well, it's, yeah, we can also use a different name for it, but I use that term to... Uh, I'm not the only one, no. It's, it's people who are, are dreaming of a federal Europe talking it in terms of the United States of Europe. So we're talking about more of a federal, federalist... Yeah, I think we need more Europe. We yeah. need a, a stronger political unity. So we should we imagine more of a regional uh, unity, more based on regions instead of states? Yeah, well, actually there are, uh, uh, there are many studies uh, who dem that demonstrate that, um, that identity nowadays and also political power is much more concentrated on cities. Like I myself, I identify with the city of Genoa. Uh, of course, it's very easy to find uh, somebody who feels, somebody living in New York who feels very much connected to the city of New York, but doesn't feel perhaps so much connected with the United States of America. So if you imagine... Uh, a federal state of Europe in which all these cultural differences and, well, of course, you also need local politics. You also need politics that are close to the people as they are uh, centered on cities, perhaps more so than on regions. I think that uh, that would not be such a bad model. But isn't that too cosmopolitan as an idea? Because then It's you entirely cosmopolitan, but it's also the beginning because... <laughs> After we have uh, the United States of Europe, of course, we need the United States of the world. United Federation of Planets, as exactly. in Star Trek. Yeah. Yes. That's where we should get. Okay. So those are the, your the ideals, or at least uh, one of the ideals that you, are, you strive for or you think about. Yeah, but I also think that it is absolutely not original to strive for that. Because okay. what would be the alternative? to strive for ever more diversity, ever more strife, ever more. Yeah. I don't think that is a very fruitful way. 
So it's, it's, for me, it's totally logical. So should we actually create a new story about uh, realms, kings for our future instead of a very Republican way of thinking? Why do we need kings? Okay, that's a good one. No, no, I think, well, with all its uh, faults and defects, we still haven't discovered uh, a better system than democracy, I think. Even yeah. if democracy right now doesn't show itself from its best sites, but I don't think that, well, of course, Holland is blessed with a very good king. <laughs> we could make uh, Willem-Alexander, we could make him king of Europe. That would be a good idea, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> democracy and everything, that is a unoriginal idea <laughs> in the sense of the way of how we would like to think about the future of Europe. No, there's currently the Conference on the Future of Europe, which is a trilateral endeavor from the European Parliament, the European Commission and the, uh, the European Council. And that is actually a one-year-long conference. Many people don't know about this, but it's a multi-digital platform online where you can just write in your ideas. But that also makes it kind of not very appealing. No, it's like... Yeah. Uh, There's a bit of one of the problems with Europe now that there are many things that many people don't know about. It's um, it's not seen as uh, as a very sexy subject. No, newspapers don't write very much about it. Yeah, so the, for example, there's now currently um, there's a growing very small party which is Volt, uh, which which tries to actually bring to uh, European p politics to to the national governments, which which is an interesting concept. Which also other parties like, for example, DM twenty five tried years back with Varoufakis, and Europe is just not sexy. So why is it why is it not sexy for for your, Why do you think it's so not sexy? I think because uh, people don't feel very much involved. And one of the problems of Europe is uh, that it should be more democratic. So we need, uh, we need more Europe, but we also need a more democratic Europe. Okay. And should there be more storytellers to, to talk about the democratic yes, side? Yeah, and storytellers should be paid much more. Okay. So please buy the book of Ilya because uh, there's a dear need of uh, financing. <laughs> I think in the whole sector, the whole arts sector really needs more attention in general. It's one of the things that, uh, that the pandemic taught us now, how, uh, how absolutely fundamental the arts are. It's really, uh, it defines what we are and we cannot, we, we really cannot survive without... Uh, Books, films, music, paintings. Um, it's, it's just as important as uh, food, air and water. What, what did you miss, miss the most during the, this whole pandemic? Uh, I missed very much going to the theatre. Of course, uh, reading books was uh, something I could still do. But uh, going to a theatre is, um, is a very special... Uh, experience that uh, uh, that cannot be substituted by seeing a, a DVD, uh, as uh, our minister suggested. <laughs> Which minister? The Dutch one? Yeah, the Dutch uh, minister, yeah. the young. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
uh, one of his arguments for um, for keeping the theatres closed, uh, even if all the the big shops were already open, was that uh, people can also watch a DVD. Current thing, no, is tourism, but also the way of selling out the continent, no, of, of kind of leaving it empty. We also saw that during the pandemic that it kind of got emptied out, but not only Europe, the world in general and the ways it has been tackled, but the example that you just bring of arts being left out as the last one to be opened up, that actually kind of shows that also the mentality around uh, the arts has been kind of deterred. But is that due to globalization only, or is that also because we are kind of bored from from the arts? No, I think uh, neoliberalism is to blame. We have all grown up with the idea that uh, uh, something can only have value if this value can be expressed in economical terms. Finally, after centuries, millennia of philosophy, we find we have found our destiny, and our destiny is to consume. Neoliberalism teaches us we mm. are consumers. And uh, uh, it's all about money. And when something like the art cannot be easily expressed in economical terms, uh, it is very quickly concluded that it cannot have any value. And you see that with the liberal governments we have had in the Netherlands and also in other countries, that they don't think that art is very important because uh, it cannot be economically expressed. Even if, of course, it can be economically quantified. Uh, I read a very interesting uh, study of this uh, accountancy. Was it Ernest and Young? Yes, it was Ernest and Young uh, who who estimated the economical value of uh, the creative industry, including all the arts and that kind of thing, uh, in Europe. And it's bigger than automobile industry it's bigger oh. than big tech it's a huge sector so should the economy of europe restart from the arts uh, well that's something we have always been very good at no so perhaps uh, it's not a bad idea to concentrate on that it seems uh, i think a good piece of advice also for our listeners to maybe go into the arts and for our politicians that is perhaps a sector that um, it's perhaps a very clever idea to stimulate a sector because it's it's very very good yeah because one of the thoughts no the you just mentioned neoliberalism it actually starts off from this assumption that the economy is based on scarcity or at least goods are scarce and therefore there's more value added to the things that are scarce and we see that that has brought housing prices in a lot of cities Certain goods are almost impossible to 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 buy because they're scarce, and that actually has also changed the way we engage with each other. It's also kind of it creates more. Of course, it's, it gives more freedom to each individual, but at the same time, it creates more of a fragmented society. So, what kind of way should we look forward to, in your eyes? Yeah, you touch on different things. You say um, 
actually this fragmented society uh, is very much a problem. But that brings us, I think, to to something completely different. I think that one of the um, one of the effects of the invention of internet is this fragmentation. Um, of course, internet is still a very recent thing. I remember, I'm a bit older than you are, but I remember the very first time I went on internet. It was when I was uh, in the Royal Holloway College of London in uh, 1995. I was doing my PhD, actually, so half of my life was um, in the analog era. So I realized very much how recent it is. And, uh, well, it's, uh, what is it, uh, 25 years ago that it was introduced in a major university in the United Kingdom. So we still have to learn to deal with it. Uh, it's a very recent thing. But you still can, see, you, you already can see the huge impact it has on society. The way in which we see knowledge, because now we have Google. The way we treat uh, specialists, because now we think that we are all specialists because we have Google. And our idea of uh, uh, that every single individual has the right to. Uh, Expression. Yeah, to express uh, opinions that should be listened to now because they have this possibility to, to publicize. And one of the effects is also this fragmentation because um, also because of the algorithms that are designed in a way that they give you exactly what they think you like and they think you like what you have seen before. So can... Can history, now the beauties, the arts, integrate with these technological no, developments? No, I think they, they, are, they can be a counterbalance. Okay. I think uh, art can be a way of getting you out of your bubble. It can be a way to wake up, to see things a little bit differently. If only for five minutes, I think that can be very useful. All good art has this effect now that it changes you, if only for five minutes, that it makes you see things in a different way. And that's exactly the opposite of what your internet bubble is doing. So it can be, I think, uh, a balance to it. And it's also very, uh, very important to realize, I think, that if, if you realize what all the debates are that we are having, all the debates that are dividing our country, uh, I'm thinking of the Netherlands now, are in fact cultural debates. When we're talking about, uh, all the debates are about identity, about Zwarte Piet, about what it means to be Dutch, what it means to uh, have a Dutch history with slave trade or all these kinds of things, all these discussions that divide the society to the bone are cultural discussions. So perhaps it's good to, uh, to invest in cultural literacy. So what you're actually suggesting is that to start a European identity, or at least European identities, different ones, 
we should talk about cultural diversity and the fact that there's various cultures and that there should be interaction with them. Yes, yes. And if you think about it, it's always been like that. No, if you think about uh, the Renaissance, about fifteenth, uh, sixteenth century, um, it, European culture has always been uh, a European conversation, a cultural conversation between. Well, in the beginning, it's mainly intellectuals, of course, uh, between humanists of all different countries, different backgrounds, different languages but engaging always in this conversation. And I think that is actually the blueprint for a European unity. Okay. It shouldn't be like the European equivalent of an American melting pot that we have one big Disneyland uh, Coca-Cola barbecue daddy culture. No, we should keep all our different cultures, languages, but the conversation is important. And But that's the biggest problem because there's like 24 official languages within... A language is never a problem. We are talking now. We can also talk. That's true. We have five languages that we can talk. <laughs> People understand each other. Language is not a problem. Yeah. What, what is then the problem? Problem is uh, short-sightedness. People should reach out to have a conversation and not to be afraid and stay in their bubble because they are afraid of people that may be a bit different. So it's mainly fear. Yeah, fear is is a problem. Yeah. Okay. It's also globalization brings a lot of fear. I'm scared now. <laughs> no, you shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you everybody. This was uh, Eya Leonard Pfeiffer. Thank you very much for uh, having accepted my invitation. And, it was a huge pleasure. Thank you. And it was an honor to get to know you and to have this interview actually face-to-face, -face, uh, which is also a true honor because in these current times, it's not very usual anymore to see people in their bones and flesh. I'm also very happy about that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Grazie mille. Grazie a te. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Europe Matters. Special thanks goes to my assistant producer, Antonio Mattesini. Let us know who we should interview next by writing a comment and sharing it with your friends on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook or LinkedIn using the handle at Europe Matters. Don't forget to leave a review on whichever podcast streaming platform you use. And if you really like this show, the best way to support us is by making a donation on patreon.com. You can learn more at www.europematters.com. Speak to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.